Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. guest is a practicing environmental lawyer and author who writes legal and speculative thrillers as well as imaginative stories about everything from beer to murder. Joel Burkatt's realistic environmental legal thrillers explore many facets of life, although he has a true fascination with unexpected twists. His character's reasons for doing things are as important as their actions, and we'll actually be talking a little bit about that in our conversation in a few minutes. Burkett has completed five novels, the latest of which, Amid Rage, just came out earlier this month. He grew up in Philadelphia and still lives in Pennsylvania, which provides the setting for many of his stories. Joel, I'm honored to have you on the show today. Well, Stephen, I'm very honored to be here, and I want to thank you for having me on your program. Yes, of course. And um, as you were reminding me before we even got on the air, we had had a conversation back in May, and I was thrilled and honored to hear that some of the uh, points that were brought up in the uh, conversation that uh, that you actually said you wrote them out and have them near your computer. So I want to know what it was that we that <laughs> that we were talking about that was memorable or in some ways helpful for you. So I'm intrigued, and I want I want to hear what those were. Absolutely. So at the time, the uh, novel was called Hush, Little Baby, and it's a uh, gritty post-pandemic dystopian young adult thriller. And uh, you helped me quite a bit in the early chapters uh, and had given me quite a number of good suggestions. And uh, I'm pleased to say that just about a week ago, I signed all the paperwork and I now have representation on that book. And my agent is going out to all the publishers this week. So it's, it's a very exciting time for me. That is but at the time, Congrats, yeah. at the time uh, you told me three things and they were so important that I typed them out in big letters and put them on a piece of paper, and they've been sitting on my wall, uh, scotch taped to my wall, right over my monitor now since May 11. Oh, and uh, the three things, the three things you said to me were: number one, where do the kids find meaning and hope? Hmm. And I thought that's really important to this story, and I made a number of major modifications uh, to the story to make sure that that came through. The second was, does hope live? And I uh, also wanted to make sure that was clear. And then the last thing you said to me was sort of a combination of the two. You said, I must show how the kids find hope and meaning in life. So it was, those were three things that I found very important, profound, and that uh, took the story from being an okay story to being, I think, a really, really good story. Well, that is, that's fantastic, and I'm thrilled that you know, some of those points came up and that uh, they were helpful for you. You know, as you were saying that, I do remember our conversation and just this idea of creating stories where you have characters, where are they searching for those things, those important you know, aspects of life, finding hope, finding meaning. And you know, stories that delve into that very often do have a lot more depth than just stories that are about events occurring. You know, so I think, I think that's it's good to hear that those were helpful for you. Well, and especially in a story uh, like that one, uh, the, the novel is now called Lullabies and Other Lies. Uh, Ooh, but in a story like, like that, that yeah. one, <laughs> in a story like that one where um, it's a pretty dark tale, yeah. and uh, it is intended to be a young adult uh, book, so, you know, four kids in the, uh, say, 12 to 18 age range, sure. and... Um, I mean, you can't just have have the story be a dark story with a, a dark ending, and I and it, your your suggestions really made a huge difference to me, and it really made me just think. I mean, I, I mean, you didn't change anything about what happened after uh, uh, chapter one, yeah. But all the way through the book, I carried that through uh, to the very end of the story because I felt that that was really important, especially when you're writing for young people. Uh, they've got to understand that hope lives, and uh, yeah. and that they can't just look at the world as being a completely dark place. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And um, I feel like 
you know, stories that are honest about life will point to both hope and despair. They'll point to both grief and glory, both love and sacrifice and also, like, the horror. In other words, like, our world has both, right? It has a lot of pain in it, but it also has a lot of, you know, wonder and healing and glory and grace and all of those positive things. And I think some stories end up just dwelling on the negatives and kind of depressing at the end. You get to the end, you're like, come on, come on, man. And then some just ignore all the, you know, and it's just a bright fairy tale sort of. So I think stories that, you know, really resonate with people are ones where they're like, that's honest about life. And, you know, this quest and idea of looking for hope is, is a powerful one. In fact, I heard someone say one time that all of the best stories deal with reinvention or redemption, which is interesting to me that, you know, I don't know if it's completely true or not, but uh, at least it's something to think about, the idea of um, finding that hope, you know, at the end of a story. I, I think it's very important and uh, actually in, uh, I, I had in the back of my mind when I was writing Lullabies and Other Lies, I had in the back of my mind The Road uh, by um, Cormac McCarthy, which of course is a very, very dark tale. Yeah. And, uh, but, but even in that story, there's hope in that story as well. I mean, McCarthy, who's just such a master storyteller, was able to imbue the story with a sense of hope. I mean, the, the, the voyage that the father and the son take in that story and then ultimately that the son finishes, um, has to, has, there has to be a hopeful piece to it as dark as that tale was. And, uh, and so that was, that was important, uh, an important reminder for me. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. Um, and I know that uh, now it, it, you, this young adult book that you've been working on now over this last year, and that now you've you're, you, you've finished up and completed. Now, is that also environmental kind of thriller as well, um, or do those types of stories mainly work better for your adult readers? Um, I've written. And, and now had published two environmental legal thrillers. Oh, okay. the first uh-huh. was called the first was called Drink to Every Beast, which was about um, a legal thriller, environmental legal thriller dealing with dumping of toxic waste. The second one, Amid Rage, is about uh, strip strip mining, coal strip mining. I have a third one that I've actually finished and I'm putting the finishing touches on right now, called Strange Fire, and that is about fracking. Those, those are environmental legal thrillers, really drawing on my experience and background as an environmental lawyer. Hmm. This story that we're talking about now, Lullabies and Other Lies, is not at all an environmental thriller. It's, it's, it's really what I described it before. It's a kind of a gritty pro, post-pandemic uh, thriller. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a very different kind of story for me. I've written other stories as well, other novels as well, um, that... Um, you know, I go back to from time to time and that are, sure. um, you know, that, that I may try to clean up and finish up at some point in the future. So I've actually written about a half a dozen stories, although uh, novels anyway, that are now, um, as they say, uh, you know, sitting in my drawer. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, um, the one that I'm actually working on right now is not a legal thriller, but it's an environmental thriller uh, about... Um, uh, about a young woman who, um, uh, by accident, happens into a uh, meeting, a strategy meeting of a group of um, lobbyists in Washington D.C. in 1988, and they are uh, working to um, try to squelch any uh, governmental expenditure of funds or involvement in international organizations uh, dealing with as it was called at the time, uh, global warming. So um, that really is an environmental story more than a uh, legal thriller. But my legal thrillers uh, do really do draw on my um, legal background in addition to my environmental background. So I I, I mean, and my short stories, I don't know that I have any short stories that I would say are environmental per se. I I, I write about everything in my environmental, in my uh, short stories. Interesting. And so... I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea of a very specific genre of stories, you know, environmental and legal and thriller. And, I mean, just to break that down, I think you've talked about, you know, the environmental angle and some of those stories and stuff. When, when you're writing a story, what to you makes it a thriller? Um, whether it's for young adults, you know, or for adults, maybe it has legal aspects or whatever, but it, 
you know what makes it what makes it a thriller for you well certainly it is uh the pacing uh-huh. uh it is a a an, an interest i would say more in story than in the characters although i i do have a fascination with my characters so i i, I really can't write a story without dwelling some on the characters but a lot of um a lot of uh, uh, thrillers, you know, spend a lot less time developing the characters and a lot more time telling the story, which is fine. And there's wonderful, you know, whole, you know, whole laundry list of great stories that do that. And uh, but I, I would say it's pacing and uh, probably more emphasis on story, um, more emphasis on action, uh, emphasis on um, uh, things happening at, rather than. Um, you know, rather than development of scenes and development of characters. So pace and action and tension and all of those things really really work their way into the stories that you're telling. Um, now, w- one thing that I mentioned kind of in the intro- introduction a little bit was this idea of twists in stories and how stories can kind of start in one direction then maneuver back and twist around and rug gets pulled out and we find out new information that maybe startles us or surprises us and so on. And I was curious when you're writing your stories, do you tend to start with maybe the twist or, or whatever it is, or do you start writing your story and allow the process then to start to inform where the direction of the story might go and what the twist might be? I'm going to say a little bit of both. There are times that I start writing a story and I, and I have a twist in my mind, and I think, ooh, wouldn't it be great to write a story that where this happens? And, and people aren't expecting that. And then sometimes I'm writing a story, and I, I get to a certain point, and I think to myself, okay, X could happen, but Y is believable and unexpected, and wouldn't that be more fun? I, I, mm-hmm. I attended a program you once gave on twists, <laughs> and as I recall, at the last in-person uh, Thriller Writers Conference in New York City, and I believe you, um, you incorporated a couple of twists into your program, <laughs> which I haven't forgotten, um, but, the, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I very intentionally uh, insert twists into the story, both because I think the audience is looking for it, and secondly, because I think it makes it more fun and more interesting. Now, the yeah. thing about a twist, though, as is, is you've taught me, is that uh, you have to make it believable. It has to be something that, you know, while it's unexpected, it isn't so out of the blue. You can't, in, in a non-science fiction story, you just can't have a spaceman show up and say, ooh, what a <laughs> twist. I mean, it's it's got to be something that's believable. Yeah. Yeah, over the last maybe, I guess, five or six years, that's really become more and more an aspect of the work that I do and a lot of the teaching that I do is this idea of believability, that there are some aspects of story and storytelling where we kind of will put up with maybe a little plot flaw or dialogue maybe that's not perfect or whatever it is. But anyway, as soon as you get to something that's completely unbelievable, readers will check out. They'll be like, I don't buy it. I'm done. And so even though we'll put up with some, I guess, writing, not mistakes necessarily, but weaknesses, I guess, um, when it comes to believability, if we don't maintain that, we're over. Uh, because readers are like, no, that would never happen. I don't buy it. And they'll you know, put the book down. So, so that whole idea is, I think, a super important one for all of us telling stories, writing stories, writing novels, and so on. I think so too, and I and I think that uh, believability is a is a very crucial part of the stories that we tell. I just wrote a story not too long ago that has already been published in a um, in an anthology called The Truth, and it's it's about a a low level crook who uh, is arrested uh, for driving around without a license plate, and he gets into trouble for telling the truth. <laughs> and uh, I had a lot of fun writing the story because. Um, I tried to think of, you know, worst case scenarios. What what could be the worst possible things that would happen to this guy uh, as he's telling the truth? And and uh, you know, in that story, there were just the twists just jumped out at me, and I thought, nice. oh, that would be a great twist. That would be a great <laughs> twist. And uh, at, at one point, uh, his worst nightmares come home to roost. Mm. Uh, but they were twists, and I believe that they were very believable twists. 
Yeah, the other thing that you mentioned here just a few moments ago was this idea of unexpected, where, you know, whatever the twist might be, it can't come so out of nowhere that readers, again, are like, um, uh, well, uh, okay, so let me put it this way. It can't, the twist can't be so predictable that, that we guess it, right? It's got to be unexpected, but yet that believability is there. Um, and I feel like the more we dive into that idea, um, you know, not just even one big twist, let's say, at the end of the book, but just the idea that every scene, in a sense, pivots on this idea of where it goes in a place we don't really expect, but when it gets there, we're like, okay, yeah, it totally makes sense. And it can actually shape not just the story as a whole, but actually on more of a microcosm, you know, each scene as you move forward. Well, doesn't that, isn't that the reason that a reader turns the page or a reader gets to a certain end of the chapter and it's uh, one o'clock in the morning and he says, damn it, I've got to read another chapter. There's no good so-and-so author here you know, made it impossible for me to turn out the light. I mean, that's what we want. Isn't that, isn't that yeah. the ideal scenario for us as writers is to have our reader, you know, get to that point at the end of the chapter and say, by golly, I've got to read another chapter of this book. <laughs> that's what we ho- hope for. And, you know, I'm sure it's happened to you, but people say, I couldn't put this book down or right. I did it late reading this book. One lady said to me one time, I took you into the bathroom with me. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> to, to an author, that's a huge compliment. To yeah. most people, you don't want to tell them that, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> no, That's right. But, but as a result, and that's as a result of um, not just um, I mean, the, the, the twists, small and large in the story, uh, the little cliffhangers that we um, that we incorporate at you know hopefully incorporate at the end of every chapter, and the whole purpose of that, of course, is to get the reader to turn the page and keep on going. And it's and it's not just for our own gratification, but it's because we want our readers to really enjoy the story. And I, I feel as though the readers are going to enjoy the story even more if that's happening. So it's 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 a lot of fun to come up with those. And um, and one thing that perhaps readers don't realize is that we work really hard on those and making yeah. them believable and making them fun and making them uh, suspenseful and exciting. And, and, and that's, that's a hard part of the work that we do. I know for me, I, cause I write organically, so I, you know, I don't outline, I don't plot anything out when I write. And so when I have an idea for the twist or wherever the story might go, it's always just this super exciting moment for me. Like, oh, wow, what if I did this, you know, and then, and then right. try to see if it'll work and if I can play it out in that direction. And, and that's, um, that's fun. So it's funny when people say, We're, you know, did you plan this out or something? I'm like thinking to myself, <laughs> I had no clue, you know. And so, so if someone figures out like the killer, let's say, in one of my novels, then they're doing better than I did because usually I don't even know who it is until like right. maybe the last couple weeks, you know, of writing, writing the story. But um, but I mean, it is different for different people. Some people like to plot and outline and plan and all of those things. But I like the I like the unexpected nature of the discovery, you know, as as the story moves moves forward and you know as i think about your stories and the ones that you write that that are and some of them you know based on environmental issues and so on how how do you pull that off in a way that well let's just say you know climate change or global warming or whatever term is you know being used right now but but um i mean i think everyone is concerned about the environment i mean there's nobody that i have would know of who'd say, yeah, I really don't care about pollution or something like that. So how do you pull off a story like that in a way where it doesn't sound didactic or preachy or I don't know what the right term is, but also is engaging people and maybe opening their eyes, you know, to a topic in a new way? Um, I would say it's probably the same way that porcupines mate. In other words, very carefully. (laughs) It's... uh, it's um, it, it's it's a combination of things, and and I think uh, writers like me who who delve into scientific topics and, and your your books as well, um, in your Bauer file, Bauer's Files books, uh, your your uh, protagonist is an environmental criminologist. There's a lot yeah, of technical yeah. stuff in that, um, but in in my stories. Um, there are environmental issues, and some of them are pretty scientific and pretty deep. And Tom Clancy, when he wrote uh, The Hunt for Red October, showed us how we could do that. Hmm. I mean, if you go back and take a look at that book, 
uh, first of all, his novels all tended to be very, very long. Yeah. And secondly, they had a lot of engineering and a lot of uh, submarine technology in there, and and it could have been dreadfully boring. In fact, a lot of people don't realize that his first publisher was the Naval Institute Press, which uh-huh, publishes yeah. you know dusty tomes on naval stuff. <laughs> it's you know I think that was the one and only book that they ever did that was uh, fiction, and it was just sort of a lark that they said, oh, we ought to do something a little different. Oh, here's this guy Clancy. Uh, he wants to wants us to publish his Hunt for Red October. Sure, why not? <laughs> it ended up being one of the biggest books you know of the 1980s. Yeah. Um, but he showed us how you could how you could write a book with a lot of engineering and a lot of technical stuff in it and make it interesting and make it a page turner. And, uh, you know, people like me and yourself and other writers who write about technical issues, um, you know, we owe him a debt of gratitude for doing that. So it's one thing you can't do is you can't talk down to your readers. You can never do that. And, and those of us, yourself included, who write young adult books also understand you dare not talk down to your readers. Um, but at the same time, you have to describe what could be a pretty technical thing, whether it's a submarine or whether it's um, uh, water pollution caused by uh, coal mining. You have to talk about it in a way that's understandable. And so you have to write and rewrite and get it to the point where it's, it's, um, it's understandable to a layperson, which doesn't mean that it's dumbed down, but it just means yeah. that you, you speak differently. The other thing, too, is um, at least in my stories, uh, I I I try to write from both sides of the issue. I I don't. I, I although you can probably guess my personal um, views on my on the subject when you read one of my uh, novels. The what I very much try to do is I try to present both sides of the issue. Yeah. So it, you know, coal mining is a, is a very controversial topic, and there are many people who are you know, inalterably oppose the coal mining, but there are many, many people who believe coal mining is very important and they strongly believe in it. And, um, you know, you, you can't write a story and just dismiss one side or the other. I think you really have to present it and present it fairly, which is also yeah, another that's thing. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking through some of the scenes I've written and some books I've read, and I feel like you, you kind of hit a couple of the really important things. It's not writing down to people, but also trusting your readers, you know. And one of the things that I've tried to do is when I write about something that it seems like people already know about, let's say for your story, global warming or climate change or whatever, people are like, oh, I've heard about that before. I try to always, you know, include an angle that they hadn't thought of. Um, whether it's pro or con, um, but try to get them to think, I've never really, you know, considered, you know, that before. That's kind of interesting. And and um, I don't know if you do the same kind of thing when you look at those those topics, but I find that for me it helps really helps me to tell the stories. I do that, and I do that through my characters. Actually, in Amid Rage, the epigraph for the uh, story is a quote from Jimmy Carter in 1977, where he said uh, that the United States really needed to mine a lot more coal and that uh, this is how we were going to overcome the energy crisis. And he called it the moral equivalent of war. And um, and you start start out with that, (laughs) you know, from one of our venerated uh, past presidents. And uh, I have a number of characters. I have, I have a couple of characters who are crackpots in my story, for sure. Sure. But I also have um, you know, a number of characters who are very serious people who um, who say some very serious things on on the pro coal mining side. And then I've got a number of characters on the other side who say some pretty serious things about the anti coal mining side. But I feel that that's important to present. If you can present it both on both sides through characters that people aren't going to look at as as comical characters are going to look at them as okay that's a serious character I, I i'm going to listen to what this guy is saying because at the end of the day readers are going to come to your story with their own preconceived notions they're going to uh-huh. leave your story and maybe you've taught them a little something about one side or the other and you have no idea you have no idea who it is that's going to pick up your book you have no idea what their um what their views are going to be and uh and so the best thing that you can do is educate the person, whether they're pro or con, and that that's a really important thing that we can do as writers. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point. Um, and 
you, you know, I've, I was just thinking of a, uh, there's a movie that I saw a number of years ago that was against the death penalty. Okay. Now, the death penalty, there are people for it, there are people against it, and it's, it's just, you know, it's just not an environmental, you know, issue, but it's certainly one that's polarizing in some cases. And so, so you know, I started watching this uh, film, and I was like, oh, okay, I kind of get it. The main characters are... Uh, you know, against the death penalty. Well, then everyone that they had who was for the death penalty was basically comical or crazy, um, you you know, like a caricature. They're buffoons or they're idiots or they're just like insane. And so you're watching this film and you're just like, I get it. You're against the death penalty. (laughs) Just tell me a good story, right? By the end, I I was just completely turned off from it, not because of the acting or, or the writing necessarily so much. Oh, I guess maybe the writing, but, but anyway, it was well done enough, but it was so one-sided that it was hard for me to really engage with. felt like agenda-driven, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a number of environmental books that are out there, fiction, uh, that um, take a very, very strong stance. I'm going to say, for the most part, pro-environment and anti-development stories mm-hmm. uh, with a couple of notable succe- uh, exceptions. And, um, I mean, you know right from the beginning, as soon as you start reading the story, uh, you know, what perspective the author has in that. And, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But on the other hand, it's, it, um, it sort of uh, minimizes the impact of any education that you might get from that story. Yeah. Now, tell me a little bit about the characters. I know we've talked some about plot movement and twists and all of this stuff, but but um, I know that when you develop your characters, you want to make sure that they have strong motivations in certain directions. And I was curious if you – I know some authors will really dive into backstory of a character, and they really look at backstory as the key to motivation, that, that, that something happened in this character's past, whatever, maybe something traumatic, dramatic, whatever, and then that helped to shape or change or direct this character to be motivated in a certain direction that they are for the story. I was curious, what's your approach to that? Um, do you dive into backstory in that way, or do you dismiss backstory or motive? And Just kind of what's your approach? I... Um I certainly have backstory. I mean, it's almost impossible to tell a novel-length story without having some backstory in there. And I certainly have backstory in my books, uh, but I don't really dive into it. I'm reading one right now, uh, and there's a tremendous amount of backstory at the beginning of the book. And I I find that to be a um, a real uh, distraction from the main story. When Mm -hmm. when the main story starts... And then let me tell you about Bob. <laughs> you read about Bob for you know, 15 pages. It's like, oh, and then you finally get back to the story. It's like, well, what happened? What, what, what am I reading about now? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. This, is the, this is the reason I started to pick up this book. Um, but uh, I, I, do, I do blend in the backstory throughout, throughout my story. Another thing that I've done in, um, in all the things that I've written is I don't have any superheroes po- super or people mm. with superpowers yeah. in my stories. And and that's fine. I mean, you know, you can read, uh, you know, you can read. Uh, I won't even mention the names. You can read stories by many people that you and I both know. Yeah. And uh, you know, their story, their their character is unusually large. They're unusually smart. They have <laughs> photographic memory. You know, they you know they you know they 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 can shoot a gun better than anybody else. You know, they're super duper marksmen, that kind of thing, or whatever it is that they can do. You know, they do these things, and it's. Uh, and that's fine, and that, that enhances the story, and especially if there's a sort of a secret superpower that we all know about and that they rarely use, it can be fun to see when are they going to use, when are they going to use that superpower. But I, I think it's – I want my characters to be relatable. I want people to read the story and say, oh, uh, that could be me. I, I could see me doing that. And, and I think that that makes the story more engaging, at least from my perspective. Um, if if a, a reader can read the story and say – I get it. That guy could be any, any man. And, and really, it's, it's the way I, I try to write my story. So I do have a backstory. My main character is a guy named Mike Jacobs. And uh, Mike is he's a guy with a, a number of issues, as, as we would say. He's in his mid-20s. He's, we, we learn in uh, my first book and now in the second book that 
uh, environmental prosecutors have a tremendous amount of power. And they're young. I mean, they're, <laughs> in the first story, he's 27 years old. In this story, he's 28 years old. And, and you think about people that you know that are in their mid-20s, and you say to yourself, how is it that a person that age can have that much authority and power? Mm, yeah. That's that's the way our government works, and, and those people do have that kind of authority and power. And uh, and sometimes he uses it the right way, and sometimes he misuses it a little bit. Uh, he tries not to cross the line, and every now and again he gets very, very close to the edge, and sometimes mm. he does step over the line a little bit. Uh, but again, I try to make him very relatable despite his flaws. He's got character flaws um, that I think, again, are kind of relatable character th- flaws. Um, and throughout the story, I do blend in a little bit of his backstory. So um, I, I, don't, I don't dwell on it, but I, I, yeah. I blend it throughout the story. Now, are there other specific steps that you take you know, to make your characters super relatable to, to readers besides maybe not making them extraordinarily super-powered in some, you know, extravagant way or whatever do you have like a list say okay i'm going to give them a quirk i'm going to give them a wound i'm going to give them a flaw i'm going to give them whatever or or do you just you know as you're writing say okay look i'm going to make this character a certain way and then he comes out as relatable um i think it's the way i write actually yeah. um I, I don't think i i set out um saying i'm going to make this guy relatable but i think that i reacted to stories where the main character has a superpower and i decided no my guy's not going to have a superpower not like that, yeah. um my my uh, antagonist in a mid-rage is a guy who owns a coal mining company named ernie renati and when i first wrote ernie i um he, he's just a bad evil man and yeah. after i after i personally had reread it the story several times i thought to myself boy he's too bad he's too evil there's nothing redeemable about the guy and there should be yeah. and so i gave him a three-legged dog hmm. and it's i don't know why i decided to do that other than the fact that i thought you know this is a guy who the one thing that he truly loves in the world is this three-legged dog <laughs> and 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 I think it really works in the story because, you know, the, the, the little dog Butch goes with him everywhere. Yeah. And as mean and evil as he is, at the same time, you say to yourself, well, there's something about a guy who owns a three-legged dog that he, and he tells a story at some point that he found in a, in a dumpster and, uh, and that he kept. I mean, it, yeah. it makes him, I don't know, that it, that maybe it makes him a little better of a person, but at the same time, it makes him, even he, a little bit more relatable. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the keys to creating, you know, dimensional characters isn't, let's say that they are, for instance, like this character you're describing, maybe impatient with everyone. Well, the key is not to find more places for them to be impatient with their boss, with their spouse, with their kids, with the taxi driver, whatever. But what's interesting to readers is who are they not impatient with? Who's the one person they're patient with or a character who's angry all the time? Who does he not show anger to? That's suddenly interesting. And when you just describe that, I think, you know, he's bad or he's, you know, maybe cruel to a lot of people, but, but not to this dog. And so then he becomes more dimensional. Uh, so, right. yeah, I think, that's, I think that's really interesting. Well, and I think it makes it, uh, it gives you some opportunities for some plot twists. And actually, um, once I added the three-legged dog, it, it really provided me with a couple of interesting plot twists that I hadn't even anticipated. And then all of a sudden it became, you know, this little three-legged dog really becomes a pivotal character in the story mm-hmm. as, it, as it goes on. And, and I hadn't intended that when I started writing it because Renati didn't even have a dog at first. Yeah. I, th- I think that's good that, this, you know, as you went through your story and you kind of critically looked at it, I think that's a good word and maybe for authors who are listening is don't assume that your first draft is going to be, you know, targeted where it needs to be, but feel free to, you know, adapt it and, and it's um, maybe the direction of the story, the depth of the characters and so on as you revise and and revise it. Now, um, your book just, uh, I think we mentioned earlier, just came out this month, Mid-Rage, and um, it, what do you want to tell us about your story? I mean, you, maybe not any uh, big spoilers, but um, you've mentioned a little bit about it, but uh, is there anything else you want to share about, um, about this new book of yours? Absolutely. Um, 
The story is about a coal mine permit dispute, which is a pretty typical kind of a, a, a legal battle that takes place here in Pennsylvania and in other states where there's mining. And uh, Mike, our protagonist, is the government lawyer working for the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, who's assigned to handle the the appeal that's first filed by the uh, the, the operator himself, who doesn't like all the conditions that were added on to his permit. Mm-hmm. And then a second appeal that was filed by the citizens who don't like the fact that a permit was issued at all. Mm-hmm. And Mike finds himself in the unenviable position of being stuck in the middle. So the, the judge uh, folds the two cases together, and now you've got a three-way case with the uh, iron operator on one side, the citizens on the other side, and VEP uh, and Mike in the middle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that is a not uncommon situation, but it gave me the opportunity then to have all three of these, um, these sides in, in, one, uh, in one writing, in one novel. Yeah. Um, the, uh, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, after having done environmental law for 40 years in my life, is that most of the time it can be dreadfully boring. It sounds like it should be really interesting and fascinating, and, and I will say from my perspective it is. <laughs> when you start thinking about what it is that we environmental lawyers really do, a lot yeah. of the work that we do, um, frankly, is, is pretty boring stuff. The subject matter may not be boring, but when you start looking at, at uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages of regulations that you've got to plow through and, uh, and statutes and uh, case law and, uh, and just understanding all of that to be able to give a little opinion about something or to be involved in regulating something, you realize how, how uh, complicated and frankly boring it can be. But I, I wanted to make this story as exciting as possible, so I took a, a subject that I think is an interesting and exciting subject that people are interested in. And I, uh, and, I, and I enhanced it a bit for purposes of uh, fiction, which I feel as I'm entitled to do. Sure. And uh, created some interesting characters like Mike, who is a likable guy, a, a young lawyer, an interesting background. He life. He spent a year in rabbinical school and uh, decided that wasn't for him and ended up uh, becoming an environmental lawyer. And, uh, and he's got, uh, both of his parents are now dead and we learned in the first story that his father had been dead for a number of years and that his mother dies under very suspicious circumstances in a nursing home. And we, and we learned that he's, he's really a good guy. He t- helped to take care of his mother uh, during her, her final days. And, uh, and so Mike's a good guy, and he's got, he's got some issues uh, with uh, commitment to women, uh, and that plays a role in the stories. Um, and then on the other side, we've got Ernie Renati, who we learned from the first chapter is a really bad man. Mm-hmm. And other than the fact that he's got this dog, but he's a really bad man. And he, it, the characters he surrounds himself with are also really bad people. And then, uh, you know, the, the lawyer um, who represents uh, Renati uh, is uh, a, a Philadelphia lawyer. And uh, he's kind of a... Uh, an, an amalgam of every Philadelphia lawyer I ever met. So he kind of <laughs> blends together the characteristics of uh, quite a few um, people that I've, uh, you know, that I've, that I worked with over the years. His name is Sid Feldman. And he's just, I mean, if, if you want to, if you want to look in the dictionary under you know, Philadelphia lawyer, you'd see a picture of Feldman, uh, <laughs> my, uh, my Philadelphia lawyer. And then uh, uh, representing uh, the citizens group is Miranda Clymer. And Miranda is a uh, uh, very, very attractive uh, business lawyer who really has no business being involved in an environmental case. But, you know, the, the citizens came to her for whatever reason, and, uh, and now she's involved in the case as well. And then Mike's best and closest friend is uh, Nikki Kane, and the two of them are pals. They're very, very close. Uh, there's no outward romantic relationship, although we come to learn that Mike would like there to be a romantic relationship, but that's going to be impossible with Nikki. Mm. And uh, and uh, Nikki becomes a very intrinsic part in Mike's uh, Mike's development as a person, and in decisions that Mike makes at the end of the story. That that would be a spoiler, so I won't get into that. <laughs> but um, sure. it's uh, you know you know it, so interesting characters and an interesting subject. I, I spent uh, if you don't mind me getting into this, I I, I spend a lot of time talking about mining and uh, trying to educate people regarding the mining process. Yeah. I spent time uh, dealing with blasting, and I, I did a fair amount of uh, blasting law 
work as a lawyer. And so I was able to get into blasting. And, and, and it's exciting and interesting kind of stuff. But I will tell you one thing that you've got to be careful about doing, Steve. Yeah. That is when you look up ammonium nitrate uh, fuel oil on the Internet, be very careful when you do that. <laughs> Did <laughs> you get someone calling you or something? Well, I mean, you start getting some weird things happening on your computer. And uh, <laughs> the, 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 um, the, uh, the um, acronym for that is ANFO, A-N-F-O. And uh, the funny thing was, you know, I, I got some weird things that just sort of happened on my computer, and I thought, uh-huh. I wonder if there's Homeland Security or something isn't looking into me. But then, this is really weird, I started getting ads from Amazon for ammonium nitrate. I mean, really? Come on. <laughs> is that even possible? That um, is so, crazy. Yeah. I, but I wanted to get it right. And um, in addition to uh, uh, describing the blasting process and what really happens, and, and again, doing it in a way that I think is uh, enjoyable for the reader to read about, um, I, I have a number of friends who are in the mining industry and in the blasting industry. And I ran those chapters by them because one thing I felt that was very, very important was to have authenticity. Yeah. And uh, I know you've talked with some other writers uh, of historical fiction and other things. And, and readers are out there. And I think there probably are some readers out there who are waiting to say, gotcha. Uh, but then there are other people who just catch something and they say, no, nah, that's not right. That's not when, that's not when the uh, Phillies won the World Series. Ah, so, yeah. um, I mean, you've got you've to be careful and make sure that you get it right. So I wanted to make sure that I ran my mining and blasting scenes past people who weren't, you know, weren't people like me who encountered it, but people who actually did it. Yeah, when you were talking about that, it reminded me of the gift that my daughter actually gave me for Christmas, and it's a mug and, uh, with the words on it. It says, don't worry if you look at my search history I'm a writer, not a serial killer. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we all have those strange moments when we're searching for things as authors, of thrillers especially, right. where we're like, I what, hope no right. one sees that I'm looking into this thing. When, so, when, you, when you search, you know, what's the fastest way to kill somebody? <laughs> you just wonder, is there some, is there some, uh, is there some uh, um, blip that comes up on the uh, some national security agency uh, computer I screen know, somewhere. Right? Hey, we got a live one. Get away from the, you know, how to get away with a perfect murder or something like that. So, right. well, it sounds like the book's intriguing, and I like that there are big stakes. You know, a lot of times people, when they talk about, you know, a story, they'll say, what is your character? What do they want? You know, what are they trying to accomplish? Conflicts or whatever that people bring up. And then a lot of times, like, what are the stakes? What are the consequences? Um, Either way, if they don't get what they want, um, what happens? And it sounds like a story like that does have big stakes for characters, but also for the environment. So, so of course, I wish you all the best with the new book. That's exciting. Well, thank you. And uh, let me say, too, that um, one thing we really didn't talk that much about was the legal thriller side of this, and that is that there are a number of courtroom scenes, and I was very gratified in seeing some of the uh, reviews written, and I, and I recognize the name of two of the reviewers. One was a guy who was a former U.S. attorney in uh, what's known as the Middle District of Pennsylvania, and the other was a guy who was a former assistant U.S. attorney for uh, the Southern District of New Jersey, people I happen to know. And uh, they both commented that the uh, the trial scenes are very, very authentic, you know, very um, uh, a lot of conflict, a lot of tension, and, uh, and I was very gratified to see that they rated those scenes very, very highly and thought very highly of it as well. So I'm, you know, I, I don't know them quite uh, John Grisham's level yet, he, who, of course, is the master of this, or Scott Truro, but uh, it was very gratifying to see that from people who are really in the know. Oh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. It's whenever you see a review or you hear from someone who's an expert in the field you're writing and they say something like, this came across as authentic, believable, interesting, intriguing, whatever it is, yeah, that always means a lot. You did your research then, and so congratulations. That's great. Yeah, it's good to hear that. Um, So before we we close up, I wanted to see if you had – any advice for, let's say, aspiring authors or storytellers, maybe uh, maybe people who are even, you know, accomplished in this area? I know our listeners are always intrigued by little hints and tidbits and 
nuts and bolts advice or anything like that. Does anything come to mind as far as what you've learned over the years, maybe that no one ever taught you um, about being a writer? Something that might be helpful for people who are telling their own stories. Yes, and in fact, um, I, I will say that a little bit different than what you're asking is that I have heard this advice before, but it really and truly is the best advice that I can give. I, I actually wrote a um, little piece that's on my blog, on my website, about uh, the 10 things that you can do if you're writing a novel. But oh, the top great. two things, the top two things are, number one, read. Mm. You know, I, I, if, if you want to learn how to write thrillers, read Stephen James. Read Lee Child. You know, read, um, you know, all the great writers who are out there, Grisham, you know, James Lee Burke, Elmore Leonard, Mario Puzo, Harlan Coben. Read all these people because every time you read one of those books, it's like a master class in writing. And everyone writes differently. I mean, Lee Child writes you know, very differently than James Lee Burke. And, um, and they're both writing terrific um, thrillers. So if you, and it doesn't, you don't have to be a thriller writer. I mean, you can yeah. be any kind of a writer. If you've got a particular genre that you like to write in romance, um, by the way, I attended a, um, a program just the other night with, uh, they called it, I think, the Queens of Romance, which was a very fun program to attend. But I learned something about writing romances. But, you know, read, if, you're, if you want to write romances, read romances. Make sure you are a reader of those things and that you start to understand the genre and understand that there are differences in the genre so that uh, a guy like uh, James Lee Burke is writing very, very differently than a guy like Elmore Leonard. I mean, they're, yeah. you know, almost night and day in many ways that, uh, that they're writing. But you have to read those people to understand that, okay, here's my genre, here are the various things that people are doing in my genre. So you've got to read and you have to, and I don't know about you, but I find that as a writer now, I read very differently than I do as a, than I used to do as a reader. And yeah. It doesn't matter what I'm, what I'm, what I'm reading anymore. I mean, I, I used, I was never a fast write, reader, but I'm a, a very, very slow reader now because not only do I read, but I'll go back and I'll reread the, the paragraph. I'll think, Oh, you know, what, what was Stephen trying to do in this paragraph? Oh, I get <laughs> yeah. it. I see what he's doing here. Very clever. <laughs> nice. Nice twist. Um, and, and so you slow down and you read it critically. But number one thing that I would advise um, people who are you know, setting out on the journey is to read. I, I will tell you, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, you know, you have people come up to you after a program and they're talking to you and they say, you know, I really want to write, but I don't really like to read. <laughs> it's like, well, dude, you got you to get your, you got to start reading. Uh, the other thing is, and this this seems um, pretty, um, uh, I don't know, pretty obvious, but if you want to be a writer, you've got to write. Yeah. And um, you know, again, both of us and probably every other writer who's published a book has had people come up to them and say, "Oh, I've got this great novel. It's in my head. I just <laughs> all I have to do is get it down." Yeah, <laughs> and you and you've got to you've got to get it down. Um, you know, there have been a lot of people. Hemingway, uh, the one that I read uh, a couple of years ago that really stuck with me was Anne Lamott, uh, mm -hmm. who wrote a book called Bird by Bird, and uh, makes a very strong and compelling argument uh, that uh, you've got to get over your perfectionism and get over you know whatever it is that's holding you back. But it's really important for you to get the words down on the paper and understand that your first draft is just that. And nobody else on earth has to see your first draft. It's, it's yeah, very different you than your final draft. So those are my two pieces of advice, which, again, they're, they're not unique to me at all, but uh, they're certainly things that I've learned over the years. It's read is number one and write is number two. Well, that's great. And you mentioned that you have a list of other ideas on your website. Where, uh, where is your site? What's the site that people can connect with either to read some of your advice or actually to check out you know, some of your books and reviews and so on? Yep. The uh, place to go is joelburkett.com. So just my name.com. And uh, there's a blog on there. And uh, it, it, I, I, I'm not a huge blogger, but I've got uh, I don't know, eight or ten different things on there, um, some things uh, about personal background of me and also um, suggestions that, I've, that I have. Plus, I've done a little bit of writing and a lot of thinking about um, uh, some, what's known as sometimes, what's sometimes called eco-fiction. And I've actually broken that down now into three or four different categories. Um, you know, what, what is it about a story like Zoo by James Patterson and... Uh, you know, another story like uh, 
you know, the, the, uh, the um, monkey wrench gang, you know, why I was they, just how, thinking of that book. I was just like waiting for you to get done. And I was like, I'm going to ask him about the monkey wrench gang back in the day. Yeah, I mean, That's so funny. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're both in the category of eco thrillers, but I, I've, I've come to the conclusion that you have something called eco thrillers, which are stories like, uh, like zoo or relic or jaws. I mean, they're all eco thrillers. They're all sort of, what I like to call, you know, your 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 dad, your granddad's, um, you know, thrillers, eco thrillers, and then there are environmental thrillers, which are more realistic based, like the Monkey Wrench Gang or uh, Carl Hyacin's books, many of which have a lot of um, environmental aspects to it. Quite a few newer stories that are coming up now, and uh, uh, a good, really good young writer that I like, a guy named John McGoran, who's writing a number of books that have environmental aspects to it. And then you've got environmental legal thrillers. Grisham has written three of them, Pelican Brief, uh, The Appeal, and Grey Mountain. And, uh, and then, of course, my two books that fall into the environmental legal thriller category and a whole new category called, uh, uh, humorously called Cli-Fi, which deals with uh, uh, climate fiction and, and has more of a science fiction aspect to it, which is why they call it Cli-Fi. But... And so I have I have uh, my list of uh, books that I think that fall into those categories, and a little uh, and a description about what the different categories are and what makes them unique. Well, I'm sure that'll be interesting to people, both if they're writing, you know, within this realm, or if they're just readers saying, "Hey, look, I'm interested in this kind of stuff. I want to know what other authors and books are out there like this." So yeah, we encourage our listeners to go. Check out your check out your website at joelbercat dot uh, com. Correct dot com. Yes. 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 And um, so that's great. And so if, the, if people aren't familiar with your books, I would say where, where's the best place to start? Is it with your most recent one, Amid Rage? Would that be a good one, or is it important for them to drop back and maybe read the previous book first? Well, I would say read both of them. But uh, <laughs> if you're looking for one, if you want to read uh, where the Mike Jacobs story begins, it's with Drink to Every Beast. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, then the second in the series is uh, Amid Rage. Now, I've written them as a series and not as a sequel. Uh, so I'm sure your, your listeners would understand the difference. But uh, you, you don't have to read one to be able to appreciate the other. And, and the next book yeah. in the series... Uh, called Strange Fire, uh, also is written so that it can be a standalone, but uh, it, it is the third book in the series. Yeah, no, that's great. I, a lot of people will ask that question, won't they? Do I have to read all the previous books to you know understand this one? And so I'm like, no, just read it. It stands on its own. It's connected, right? But right, but oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to write a book where someone has to like. There are 11 books in my Patrick Bowers uh, series the Bowers file, so I wouldn't want to write a book that say, yeah, you have to read the previous 10 books before you can read them. People's <laughs> eyes go, but what? I don't have to do that. So. Right, right. Well, anyway, Joel, it's been great uh, chatting with you. I've enjoyed the conversation, the advice, the insights, and, and I'm sure our readers will enjoy checking out your some of your books, so thank you for your time. Well, Stephen, thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, your having me on your program. I I went over the list of other authors, and I am quite humbled and honored to be uh, included on that uh, vaunted list of, uh, of interviewees. So thank you again. Of course, sure, yes. And also, to I want to thank our listeners for, for listening in and um, for more information about other broadcast or other guests like you mentioned that we've had on our show and you can search on apple Podcasts, spotify amazon music or wherever you listen to your podcasts or you can click to the storyblender.com for more information bios on our guests and so on don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts friday evenings tell your stories well my friends and always remember the art of the story is all in the blend Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.